Well, this morning we finish our series on Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And we do so by looking at John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. John not only wrote this gospel, so the passage we look at today, the book that we look at today, but then he also wrote the last four books of the Bible. So that's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then Revelation. And those are letters, uh, which is helpful to understand as opposed to, let's say, books as we might call them today. So as we look at today's chapter, or the verses today, we should be asking ourselves, who is this Jesus? It's the same question that we've been asking last week, and then the week before, and then the week before that one. And again, it's a question that we hope that many today are pondering during the Christmas season, a holiday where many people around the globe uh, obviously gather together to think about or to remember in some shape or form Jesus Christ born in a manger. This morning's passage is a very, very famous one, one that lays a very strong foundation for Christians in relation to who this Jesus is. Okay, so if anybody's going to ask you who this Jesus is, you should be referring back to this particular chapter. And from it, we look at seven truths about the identity of Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, that's uh, what we'll be focusing on, seven truths of the identity of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, I'll go ahead and begin by reading verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The first truth that we notice about Jesus Christ is that he existed before creation. Okay, we're trying to get a picture here, an understanding of who this Jesus is. Point number one, Jesus existed before creation. You could also say that he is the pre-existent one. And it says there, in the beginning. As we, met, as we mentioned uh, last week, we know that this word beginning refers to origins. So last week as we looked at uh, Luke chapter 1, or, or Matthew chapter 1 rather, uh, we were looking at Jesus' origins, right? But today we're looking at different origins. We're looking at the origins of the universe. But not because they are the subject of our focus. It's more like the setting in which we see this great sun. The one through whom everything comes into being, as we're going to look, look at a little bit later. So here, the setting is the, the, the universe's origins. But then God here takes center stage. It says, in the beginning. And it sends us back to the beginning, right? So those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, you know that those words are actually the same as the opening words of Genesis. Where Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. Here, though, in John, very much so, in many ways, the beginning of the New Testament, the revelation of Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was created. The Word was preexistent. Jesus was preexistent. In the beginning was the Word. So that's the first one, preexistent. The second one. Obviously, according to the verse, Jesus was the word. He is the word. And many have wondered what exactly this means for Jesus to be the word, especially since he existed from the beginning or in the beginning. 
And then naturally, you know, we want to know, well, who exactly is this Jesus? Because we're trying to figure out his identity. Uh, what exactly does word mean, this word word? Well, we can think of ourselves, you know, we are expressive people. And so naturally, our words are our self-expression. And we might say, okay, you know, I understand that Jesus is the word, self-expression. Um, but what else is the word? And here some people have sort of reached back. And, and if we want to be responsible in terms of how we study the Bible, it's important to go back to first century and see how exactly John was using that word in light of everyone else who was using that word. So this is just sort of natural, responsible Bible study. But unfortunately, some people, they say, oh, well, look at the surrounding way the Greeks and the pagans and the philosophers use this word, word or logos. And then they say, well, John meant the same thing that all these other Greeks, pagans, and philosophers meant. But that actually doesn't really quite work out because if you look at the data, it just doesn't really fit. So John, as he was writing his gospel, he had to look for some sort of word to describe Jesus Christ. And so he goes to this word, word. But then to really understand what that means, he's, you know, we've got to keep in mind that John's not only looking at how the word is used in his context, but also for the entire Old Testament. That's where we really ought to go. And that's where we can really trust him to be looking at as he comes to understand and present to readers like ourselves who this Jesus is. So if we're looking at the Bible, we see that it's not this word word is not where, uh, let's say, where Greeks thought that word was the organizing rational principle Sort of the ration behind everything in the universe. That's what the Greeks said. The Bible says that the universe was created through God's word. Not just a principle, but the very thing that gives it life. Okay, so you see it's, it's really different than the way that the Greeks are using it in the first century. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, It was by the word that the heavens were made. Okay, so his identity here is coming to clarity more and more. Another thing, the Greeks thought the word was this impersonal thing. But we see in the Old Testament that God's word is actually incredibly personal. Keep in mind it is self-expression, the self-expression of God. It comes from God, but then it goes out and then actually engages people. So then you hear about how the word of the Lord came to such and such a prophet. And then that prophet goes on and tells this certain other people, thus says the Lord. It's a personal claim almost. As the word comes and engages people personally. So we're looking here at the Bible to see what the, what the Old Testament has to say about the word. Uh, listen to this, okay? As we continue to go on. Ezekiel 17. Or sorry, Ezekiel uh, 37 where the, the, the dry bones are brought together. And these dead skeleton bones sort of take life. What's giving life to those bones? It is God's word actually. So, so there the word gives life. And then in Psalm 107... We see that there is saving power in the word. God sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. So here we're getting a picture of who exactly this word is. What it does. It creates, it delivers, it rescues, it saves. And then it comes and engages the people. So then as John is looking for a word to describe Jesus. Who does these very same things. Who who uh, creates, who delivers, who rescues, who saves and comes to engage with his people, it's really natural that he goes and uses the word word or logos. After all, Jesus Christ himself says 
that he himself has the words of eternal life, right? His, his disciples know that. They say, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The next thing, this word was with God. This is the third truth to note, if you're taking notes. This is the third truth to note about Jesus Christ and his identity. Jesus was with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, it says. So according to John, this word, which was in the beginning, it was also with God. So there you get this idea that it isn't, um, or that there are, what, the, what, what Christians would call the three-in-one uh, and this is a word, a way of describing the Trinity here. And here, I think John is alluding to the fact that that there is this interpersonal relationship between the Word and then the Father, as it says, it was with God. So you have relating together. You have personality here. And then, if you were to go on and read the rest of the Book of John, which I encourage you to do, it was not going to take you that long. You could do it this afternoon. You will then go and see how there is actually this, this interpersonal relationship. That John says wasn't only when Jesus existed here on the earth, but was there before everything created. So here John is claiming a lot of ground. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and then he says the word was God. So that's point number four. Jesus was God. So taking the Bible at face value, John is really clear about where this word was in relation to creation, right? He wants us to know where this word was in relation to creation. He was before creation. He's also clear about where this word was in relation to God. He was with God in the beginning. And then John is also really clear about the true nature of this word. The word was God. Okay, so it's understanding. It's understandable for your heads to be hurting a little bit as we're trying to understand who is this Jesus, right? Your friends... If, they are non- if they're not Christians and they know they don't follow Jesus, or even if they do follow Jesus, you know, you've got to admit that this is slightly difficult. So much so that it makes our head hurt a little bit. You Christians say that there is one God, but then there is this Jesus who was with God and who was God. And then there's the spirit who is God and who was with God too. But yes, we say this is the doctrine of the Trinity. So when your friends ask you, you know, what is this doctrine of the Trinity? You don't need, or you shouldn't feel the need to say something like, yes, I do know all the answers entirely. It is okay to say, I don't necessarily know all the answers, but what Christians have been doing for the last 2,000 years is trying to present what's reflected here, right? That's what Christians are trying to do in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity. How exactly do we explain what's going on in these pages, which are actually quite clear? That's what Christians are doing in developing this understanding, this doctrine of the Trinity, three in one. Um, So the response there is that's what we can say. We don't necessarily need to know everything, but look, things are actually quite clear. So given that God is infinite in who he is, that's that's who he is, right? He's infinite. Um, There is no way we will be able to know all there is to know about God. There's no way that we're going to know everything there is to know about God. He's infinite. But this shouldn't discourage us. This should not discourage us. Um, God does, in fact, say that we can know him 
And so much more importantly, we can be known by God. And just because we can't know him fully doesn't mean that we can't know him truly. So that's a distinction that is really helpful for you all to make, especially when you're engaging your non-Christian friends. Just because we can't know God fully doesn't mean that we can't know him truly. Fully, truly, you see that there? But we can know for a fact that the things we know, the fact that Jesus existed before creation, that he was with God and that he was God, we know those things truly. And in those things, we can be encouraged. And I think the non-Christians, um, your friends, your non-believing friends, understand this concept of the one and the many, as some have said. So you can think of something like um, a sports team. There are many different players, but yet they are one team, right? And if you were to look at any individual player that plays for that team, you cannot say, let's say if you are Kobe Bryant, we're looking at Kobe Bryant for the Lakers, you can't say that Kobe Bryant is the Lakers, even though some of you really probably want to. But you cannot say that. He is one player in the team. And if we were to talk to Kobe, he himself would say that he leads the rest of his team, right? Now, I'm not saying that you should then go and say that the Trinity is like a sports team and every player is limited to his own uh, proper position. That's not biblical Christianity. But generally speaking here, the concept of the one of the many seems pretty clear. And you can apply this in different ways. You can think, think of a symphony, for example. Every single player needs to be playing his tune, his note, but then you go and you listen to the entire symphony. So let's say the Philadelphia Philharmonic Symphony, you know, they're, they're, they're emphasizing the one even though there are many. Okay, and again, I'm not saying that you should therefore go and say that God, the Trinity, is like the symphony. Every person is limited in his role. Um, that's not exactly what I'm saying. But the one and the many is present in many different things. Rainbow, for example. There's, there's, there's many other, th other ways that the one and the many is made clear here. Um, so this is the general concept that you can be encouraging your friends towards if they have questions about the Trinity. And if you know yourself here to find this confusing or your non-Christian friend finds this confusing, you should then go ahead and ask, well, have you ever examined it? Have you ever just read the New Testament? Let's say the book of John, for example, and actually examined intellectually what the claims are. Why exactly Christians, when they read this Bible, say that Jesus is God? What are all the different ways in which uh, people have concluded that to be so through the way that he acts, through the worship that he receives, through the way he conquers sin and death and destroys the devil, and even, and most importantly, the things that he claims. He says even that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then you can go on and look, about, look at the ways that the Jews respond to some of his claims, right? What do they do? They don't say, oh, you know, very good, very good speech. They want to kill him. Why is that? It's because they say that he's blaspheming. He is really equating himself with God. The Jews know it. And so it's helpful for us to call our friends to go ahead and examine these truths. So if you know yourself to be slightly confused about this, let me encourage you to just take the afternoon, read John, and then just write down all the ways that you see that Jesus here is worthy of worship or evidences that he is in fact God. The summary there in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 3, we get to what he does. Okay, we're, we're only at verse 3 and we could spend an eternity thinking about these things. 
climbing into the storehouses, if you will, of God's wisdom and knowledge to an infinite degree. And every step of the way, knowing God truly in the revelation that he reveals. And then in the next one, and then in the next one. So here we get to what he does. Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What do we learn about Jesus here? Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. Throughout history, you know, there have been groups who say that, uh, who, who believe and who put forward that Jesus is nothing but a created being. So there was this one heresy called, called the, uh, the, the followers of Arius. They were called Arians in the 4th century. And then today you have, let's say, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they say something like Jesus was a great person or even a great being or even a supreme being. But yet he was not God. He was merely a created being. But this verse right here, verse 3, sort of butts against all those heresies. It says all things, everything that our eyes could ever lay hold of or ever even imagine, our minds could even imagine, all of those things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, some people think that John is kind of going crazy here with his poetry or something. It is sort of, it appears to be this convoluted, confusing sentence. But here he makes a point. So the first section, go ahead and look there. All things were made through him. He is the agent of creator. So this is, this is a statement about who Jesus is. And then he goes on to say to comment about the creation. So first he made a comment about the creator. Here he then backs it up, making a comment about creation. And without him was not anything made, anything that we can lay our eyes on, everything that our minds can fathom. It, without him was not anything made that was made. There the emphasis is on the made stuff. But really it reflects the character of the one who makes them. Statement about Jesus and then a statement about creation. How can we say that he was a created being? I mean, where does it talk about Jesus creating himself if indeed he creates all created things? But it doesn't talk about Christ being the, um, the created being. It says that he is the agent of creation through whom everything was made. Okay, you guys want to know another verse then you guys can talk to your friends about in relation to who this Jesus is? Uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Go ahead and turn there. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And as you turn there, you know, we should be thankful that as we do theology, as we're studying the Bible here, trying to understand who Jesus is, we're not left with just one verse. We can go to other verses and see what exactly those things say. And then we're putting them all together. What does the Bible have to say about Jesus? Colossians 1, 16 and 17. This is what it reads. This was written by the Apostle Paul. It says, For by him... By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible things and invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, authorities, all things were created through him. And then he goes on and he says, for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So he is the creator of life, the sustainer of life, and then you could say the goal of life. Things are created for him so that they might worship him and declare his glory here. 
This is the direction that all of creation is sort of heading and moving toward this great, grand worship scene where they bow before the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what this reveals? It reveals that we are dependent beings, doesn't it? And there are so many reminders of this fact that we are dependent beings. And to use a biological example, you know, you just think about how your genesis came about, how you came about, right? Are you, in, are you independent? You can think about, you know, the sperm and the egg. You know, remember, this is biological here. The sperm and the egg, right? Where did those things come from? They came from two different sources. And then it's not like those two different sources sort of exist independently and then they find themselves coming together. Even that act, the coming together... Is, is dependent upon two other things coming together, two other people coming together. And then when you're born, right, what causes you to be born? Is it your own independence? You know, you're exerting your own will? No, you're born of your mother. And then when you're born, you then need to be fed and you're dependent upon your parents to feed you and care for you. And then even as we grow and mature, we still need... Now, you know, as you're flexing your, your independent muscles from your parents, you know, you feel independent. But then yet at the same time, you know, you might, if you're 13 years old and you get a couple pimples, all of a sudden you're worrying what other people think. You're depending on them to boost your self-esteem or you're pen, depending on these pimples to not show so that you might feel good about in front of other people. We could go on, you know, we could talk about how we need relationships. And if not, let's say if we're in solitary confinement, people go crazy, right? Oh, you, get all, you get all these reminders of the fact that we are dependent. So how many of y'all, when you woke up this morning, had to pop pills just so your heart wouldn't collapse and you would fall over? Even our health today, it screams of the fact that we are, in fact, dependent beings. I mean, some of us have allergies, so, you know, if you eat this little plant over here, you just basically keel over and die. Not to make light of allergies, I have allergies, but it just screams at us that we are, in fact, dependent beings. These are constant reminders, believe it or not, that we are not God, but that we ought to rely and depend on him. But a huge problem we have, whether Christian or non-Christian, is that we see these warning signs, we realize our dependency, and then we depend on the wrong things. So human relationships, right, thinking that they will fill your God-given desire for intimacy maybe you really cling to that dear beloved one and then when you don't have that person's love your life just sort of caves over whether they be your your uh, spouse your child i mean some of us we depend actually on let's say outside stimulation how's that for dependency we so rely on the things that are outside of us just so that we might fool ourselves to think that we really are okay or that we might escape all these other outside situations. So you got drugs, you have alcohol, etc., etc. You got sexual experience that promise real problems or seemingly promise. You might rely on your own money, your own strength to take care of your own stuff. All these things are the wrong things and the false things that people then go and depend on. So what are these things to you that you guys depend on?
those things that you depend on to really defend and grasp after your independence or the fiction of your own independence. I mean, haven't those things already proven themselves to fail you? And that's why you turn to them again and again and again. Trust in Jesus. Trust in God, the only independent being who is the creator, who is the originator of life, and on whom you were designed to depend on and find life. Now, if you guys have non-Christian friends, which I pray you do, that's the way in which you should be pointing them to Jesus. Depend on him who is the only independent being, the one whom we are designed to rely on. It's why verse 4 says, in him was life. This brings us to the sixth thing that we learn about Jesus. Jesus is the life. And this here is the longest point. Jesus is the life. This is entirely fitting to call Jesus the life because he is the originator of life. That's what we saw. But then there is another sense in which he is the life. He is the eternal life. So salvation in many different religions, in fact, and, and especially here in the book of John, is, is categorized in life, light, speech, Life and light. That's why it says in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now all of a sudden. We know. That God, though he is before all things and though he is, um, you know, he was there even before everything, everything was created. Yet he is a personal being, right? Personal. All of a sudden it says that he was the light of men. So not only did he exist before time, now actually he is the light of men. You can see him engaging. The word engages the world. So we have God interacting with his creation, bringing light, knowledge, truth to us. And then verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So you see that light and darkness there? Darkness meaning those who are closed, those who are blinded, those who are lost. The parallel again is to Genesis 1. There God speaks his word into the dark and formless void. And then creation just happens. Here you have the word, the life, the light shining into the darkness. And it is undefeated, unquenchable. It's not the darkness that overtakes the light, but in fact the light that overtakes the darkness. So you can imagine, you know, as John here is writing this text. He presents us the word for us, you know, to go back before time, before creation. And he tells us about his nature. And now he's presenting us a word that we can observe. He was the light to men. You could see him. He was shining into the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. You can imagine illumination that Jesus alone brings. And the whole, whole world was to look at and then be warmed by his light. The light of Jesus Christ. And then it says in 6 and 7 that John, ba John the Baptist came pointing toward this great light. Testifying of this great light. And then you have 9 to 13. Let me go ahead and read that there. Verses 9 to 13. Now here he really presents us this light. This word that we are to look at and observe. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the true light here, it's coming into the world. We can observe it. We can imagine the world covered in a dark fabric. And then inside you see this little, and then on the top of the fabric you see this little poke. And through it shines Jesus Christ the light who is entering into this dark place. Written for us to observe. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So you can see this, this drama of redemption unfolding before our eyes and think how in the world can the creator, the word with God was God, who was life, who was a light of men, the bringing of truth and knowledge and the way of salvation to his creation. How can he then enter into his creation, walk amongst them, and yet the people are clueless. And so I, as I was meditating on this passage, I thought that, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, the Jews and then the Gentiles there who rejected Jesus, how are they so stupid to miss the creator taking on flesh as one of the creation to deliver them? I mean, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and then as I was trying to, to, to understand their cluelessness, you know, I realized I have my wife, for example, you know, right in front of me. How many times does she say something that just really just goes in this ear and then out that ear? So if you have a spouse or if you live with a roommate or somebody or if you have a child or whatever and they say something, how many times do you guys miss what they're saying? And they're right in front of you. Or even. How many times maybe has your loved one, your loved one said something and you purposefully have chosen to ignore them? Now, honey, I, I don't do that, actually. Never. Actually, I have. And it happens like this, where maybe Melanie says something, and, and I have this problem too. I might say something, and I might mumble something, but she knows that I'm just mumbling, and therefore she is actually excused. I give her permission. I say, don't listen to me when I'm just mumbling, because that's kind of purposeless talk. And sometimes it happens the other way, where Melanie might say something to herself, and I just let it go, beep, beep. But then with God... We, treat, we end up treating him the same way. But his words are always life. And then we end up treating God the same way that we might treat mumblers or something like that. So what we might see is, and understand to be unfathomable that the Jews would miss God. Yet yeah, we're guilty of it too. Missing our loved ones. And especially missing him who made us. Now if we have done this with our loved ones. The question then becomes. Have you done this with God? By not being aware. By not listening. By not honoring him. By not heeding his word. By not loving him. By not worshiping him. The Bible says that all people actually have done this. And that's why they are in darkness. Right? We sinned against God when he came towards us. 
And we said, I don't really give a rip about what you say. You are, in fact, a mumbler to me. And we therefore do not listen to him. John 3, 19 says, we loved darkness rather than the light. And he goes on and says that, that the world did this because their works were evil. Now, if you have run away from confession, you know what that's like. We don't come to the light because we know that our evil works will, in fact, get, dis- get uh, exposed. But this has serious consequences. So when we walk by our own light, we are, in fact, saying that God's light is no light at all. So when we say that we are, in fact, independent creatures, we actually say something to God as well. If we scream out our independence, we say, in fact, "Mm -mm, he is the dependent one. And the Bible says that this is sin, punishable by death. This is like treason. This is absolute rebellion against the only independent being, the creator of the universe. But the good news is that despite our rebellion against him, he sends Christ to shine in the darkness. John 12, 46 says, I have come into the world as light. So that, that's a purpose right there, so that whoever believes, in other words, everyone who believes, may not remain in darkness. Right? And we're supposed to passively observe this, almost. Christ coming into the darkness, shining, so that he would be the light of men. This is, this is all what's behind John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave its only son, only begotten son. That whoever would believe on him would not perish but have life eternal. And when we look at that, when we look at God's love, we're not supposed to say, Oh my goodness, his love is so wonderful because the world is so big, right? There's seven billion of us. And then when you add in all the other people who live throughout history, there's even more, billions upon billions. Wow, God's love is so wonderful because the world is so big. We're actually not supposed to think that. In light of John, we're supposed to say, oh my goodness, God's love is so wonderful because the world is so bad. Darkness, evil, rejection because of sin, rejecting God. And so we have the pleasure here of observing and watching the drama of redemption in these first handful of verses unfold for us. And then look at 11, right? We see also what unfolds, a beautiful alternative to his coming, where there are some who reject him. Look at what happens, verse 11. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So those who receive Jesus, who welcome their creator, and in recognition of who he is and what he had done, worshipped him. That's what it means to believe on his name. God then adopts them as his children. So then we also right here are supposed to say, how could that be? I mean, many people think that God is some uninterested party, disinterested party, who doesn't really much care about the universe today. Distant from it. But here, this is intensely personal. You guys realize that he could have just said that Jesus Christ came into the world to justify sinners. In other words, to declare them right. But he doesn't say that. He could have said... Jesus Christ came into the world to sanctify people, sinners, set them apart as holy. But he doesn't say that. Although justification, that is a declaration of righteousness, we know that to be true and a beloved part of the gospel. Sanctification, setting apart us for holy use, that's part of the gospel as well. He could have said ransom 
so buy back people, but he doesn't say that. But he says that a sinner who repents and believes is adopted. It's astoundingly personal, isn't it? He adopts them as children of God. Those who receive Jesus, the person, are those whom God adopts. Now, now don't get me wrong. Justification, sanctification, reconciliation, and ransom, all those things cannot happen unless you are adopted. And don't get me wrong too. Adoption cannot happen unless those other things take place too. I'm just making a point here that John says that this word who existed before creation, who some people might think is distant, here he comes down and adopts people. That is intensely personal. Belief is what makes your adoption papers official. You don't have to be of a certain ethnicity. So Jewish, Malaysian, German... Verse 13 says God's children are born not of blood, so that's not ethnicity, nor of the will of the flesh, so it's not a product of sexual desire. Nor of the will of flesh, or sorry, nor nor of the will of man, so not by our own initiative, but of God. You know, some some folks, they use this, this, they they think of this term, um, you know, to be born, to be a child of God. They almost think it. To be some sort of derogatory term. You know, oh, you guys are just born again Christians. And they use that as if it is a derogatory term. But this is a beautiful picture here. A biblical picture. So you can ask the question, as J.I. Packer does, what is a Christian or who is a Christian? He says fundamentally that a person, a Christian, is one who has God as father. He goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. It's so telling here how Jesus' rescue mission uh, unfolds. He is sent of God in order that God might adopt sinners. When we're going to move on to the next thing, number seven. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. The last one. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God because he, in fact, is God. So if 1 to 5 takes us back to ponder Christ before everything was, and 9 to 13 lets us observe and watch, 14 to 18 gets us front and center as John holds out this Jesus for us to know. So look there in 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth john bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom i said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ no one has ever seen god the only god Who's at the father's side has made him known. So this word here takes on flesh and dwells amongst us. You get those first person, uh, those plural pronouns, the we, the us. See, he's holding out Jesus for us to know. And this Jesus took on flesh. This agent of creation takes on flesh, the flesh of his creation and becomes like one of us 
and dwells amongst us. You know, if there is an error of saying that Jesus is not God, that he is a created being, there is the opposite error over here of saying that Jesus was simply man. He was merely man. Oh, sorry, I misspoke there. Uh, if this error over here says that Jesus is not God but is man, there's this error over here that says that Jesus is only God and not man. That he just appeared to be man or that he just seemed to be man. But this here says specifically that this word who was God took on flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. This is God and man in Jesus Christ. You listen to, to Hebrews 2.17. It says, therefore, he had to be made man, that is Jesus. He had to be made man like his brothers in every respect, every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So you see what's at stake there? If he is not man, if he is not man, he cannot be your faithful high priest who intercedes on your behalf before God. But it also means that he cannot make atonement for your sins. So what's at stake in his manhood is actually your forgiveness of sins. You guys know the word propitiation. We've spoken about this before where Jesus is a substitute. He takes on, he takes our place on the cross. He bears our wrath that we rightly deserved. And as God pours out his wrath upon his son, God's wrath then is satisfied and his where he looks upon you in disfavor, then he now can look upon you with favor. That's propitiation. And that's what's at stake in Jesus Christ's manhood here. He actually became flesh. But then he goes on and says that he dwelt among us. And this word here means that he took up residence with us. You could translate the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And this here, the significance is astounding. The Old Testament speaks of how God delivered his people out of slavery under Egypt, and as God made a way for them, he wanted his people to know that he was with them, that he was present with them. Exodus 25 says, uh, he, God tells the people, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And so this sanctuary, this tabernacle, was where God chose to meet his people before the temple was built. And so you can imagine the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and then the temple. Really, if you were to look upon these structures, you know that God is with us and through his presence he then delivers us so it's this delivering presence and what then would happen was god's glory would be made known on the as his cloud descended upon the people upon the tabernacle and then the glory of the lord filled it it said so back to john one here here stands jesus the word become flesh God's delivering presence in all of his glory who tabernacled amongst his people, who took up residence among those he would save. So this is the fullest revelation of the glory of God here in Jesus, the God-man, dwelling amongst man. This is why John says, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So he says, we have seen it. The one who alone possesses it, the only son from the father. And this glory is full of grace and truth, it says. And the, the, the grace and truth here is a translation, basically, of steadfast love and God's faithfulness. God's graciousness and his truth or his faithfulness. 
This speaks of a God who fulfills his promises. And so the, the passage that we read earlier from Exodus 34, where God reveals his glory to Moses and proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, keeping his steadfast love to thousands. Here stands Jesus as a fulfillment of all of those promises, of all of that steadfast love. One commentator wrote, the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and surrounded and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth was the same glory John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. That's the glory full of grace and truth, full of his steadfast love and faithfulness. And now we have received from his fullness it says grace upon grace there in verses 16 and 17. Grace taking the place of grace. What does that mean? Look there in 17. For, this is the reason, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God revealed himself to Moses and his people by giving them the Ten Commandments. But now, God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, the supreme revelation of God, because he himself is God. The word. So if you want to know God, if you want your friends to know God, you point them to look at Jesus Christ, the supreme revelation of God himself. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. So Moses didn't see God, right? But then he goes on, the only God, that is Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, the Father's side, he has made him known. So if you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to follow Jesus Christ, who are you looking to? yourself this passage here calls us to look to your creator the originator of everything and then to turn from your sin and receive jesus christ this is what christ says john 14 6 whoever has seen me has seen the father and the creator the gospel is that god created us to be in relationship with him we had sinned as we mentioned earlier and the punishment of that sin is judgment and hell the good news, then, is that we can be reconciled to the Father. That we can have our sins removed and the wrath of God taken away from us. Because Christ stands in our place. Him who is God. Him who, whom God sent to be our propitiation. Our substitute. And now God's favor for all those who repent and believe is upon us. And so we have a right standing with, with, with God. We are declared righteous. We are justified. We are sanctified. We are set apart for his use. No longer do we need to be enslaved to these things, but then we can live as slaves of God. But not just slaves of God, as if a master punishes his slaves, but children of God who dedicate their life to proclaiming Christ, the word, the one who saves them from their sins. The question is, have you repented and believed? Turn from your sins as you as when you see Christ, you see the Father, the Creator. To conclude, who is Jesus Christ? He is the one who existed from the beginning. He is the Word. He was with God. He was God. He is the agent of creation. He is the life. And he is God's supreme revelation as God Himself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
We praise you. We praise you for your great acts of salvation. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for the wondrous things that you have done. As you died on the cross for sins, taking the place of all, everyone who would repent and believe. And Lord, we thank you that eternal life isn't dependent upon ethnicity or class or bank accounts. But it's dependent all upon your steadfast love, your mercy, your grace and truth. So Lord Jesus, we pray that as people who have been redeemed, who have been declared righteous... We pray, Lord, that we this season and even Christmas as we spend time with family and the many non-Christians around us, that you would grant us the boldness to point people back to your word, to point people to you, our Lord and Savior, who can actually save. And Father, we pray that we would hold out the hope that there is in Christ and that we might, by your grace, see many people come to know you and proclaim that you are, in fact, the Lord and Savior who is, in fact, The word who was with God and who was God, the agent of creation, the life, the life eternal. We thank you as well for granting us, by your grace, eternal life. And we pray, Lord, that we might spend it exalting Christ the Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.